Hello everyone, TGI Friday, and welcome to the November 20th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Deborah Tobias with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. I'm excited to be back with you to get started with this week's litigation news. The Court of Appeal reversed a 132A award against Gelson Supermarkets this week. Paul Fowler, an order puller machine operator, wanted to return to work after having an industrially related cervical fusion. Gelson's did not immediately accept his physician's release because they did not think that the release was clear enough. Gelson's questioned the physician about the release by telephone. The treating physician equivocated about returning Fowler to work and admitted he did not have the job duties in his file when he wrote the release. Later, the return to work issue was resolved by an AME. Fowler ultimately returned to work but claimed that the delay was discriminatory under Labor Code Section 132A. The judge agreed and awarded Mr. Fowler back pay and penalties under 132A for this delay. The WCAB granted Gelson's petition for reconsideration and after making minor changes in the amount of back pay, confirmed the finding of 132A discrimination. The Court of Appeal, in a published opinion, disagreed with the WCAB and annulled the 132A award. They found that the WCAB did not apply the standard established in 2003 by the California Supreme Court in the case of Department of Rehabilitation versus WCAB or the Lauher case. To establish a prima facie case of discrimination, an employee must show that he suffered an industrial injury and that the employer caused him to suffer some detrimental consequence as a result. The employee must also show that the employer treated the industrially injured employee differently by making him suffer consequences different than that of other employees. Fowler failed to make a prima facie case of discrimination against Gelson's under this standard. And the Court of Appeal, in an unpublished opinion, affirmed the dismissal of a work comp claim supervisor's Department of Fair Employment and Housing case against Farmers Insurance. Arlene Bell Sparrow was hired by Farmers in 2007 as a senior workers' compensation claims representative. She was an at-will employee with a 90-day probationary period. She did not meet all of the employer's expectations during her probationary reviews. Farmers extended her probation for 45 additional days and gave her a memorandum outlining specific deficiencies that needed immediate improvement. Farmers terminated her employment at the end of this extended probationary period because of lack of improvement in her performance. The employee then filed a complaint with the DFEH and was issued a right to sue letter. She filed a superior court complaint in pro per, alleging racial discrimination, age discrimination, retaliation, wrongful termination, constructive discharge, and other theories. The trial court granted summary judgment in favor of farmers, finding that the employee did not demonstrate any facts in support of her various causes of action. She appealed the dismissal to the First District Court of Appeal, who reviewed the, re the evidence and sustained the dismissal of her case by the trial court in an unpublished decision. And now, back by popular demand, our fraud report. 
an Auburn business owner faces prison after he pleaded guilty to fraudulently accepting more than $250,000 in federal workers' compensation payments. Mark Anthony Carrente, owner of Safe and Sound Storage, signed a plea agreement stating he was guilty of seven counts of filing false statements to obtain federal employees' compensation. Carrente conceded that he knowingly made false statements on several Department of Labor forms between January 2000 and September 2008 after he injured his back as a civilian employee for the Navy. During that eight-year period, Corrente received over a quarter million dollars in disability payments. In July 2008, Department of Defense undercover special agents observed Corrente at his storage yard where he had been working while claiming to be disabled. He will now be spending some time in storage himself. An Orange County couple who owned a restaurant at the Irvine Spectrum Center and the river in Rancho Mirage are accused of carrying out millions of dollars in workers' compensation fraud and tax evasion. Simon Hong and his wife Katie Shin, both 42, are accused of owing $5.8 million in lost revenue to their insurance carrier, the state fund, as well as penalties and interest. A former restaurant accountant told authorities that Shin preferred to pay employees in cash, according to the warrant for their arrest. Investigators also claim that payroll taxes were not withheld and employees' hours were not recorded. Hong and Shin both face 14 felony counts. Authorities say that Hong and Shin abruptly closed both restaurants without notifying their landlords or paying employees. They allege that the couple also vacated their home in the affluent community known as Cota de Casa, raising fears that they would flee to avoid prosecution. They were ordered to surrender their passports to their attorney as part of a bail agreement. A felony settlement conference is scheduled for December 17 in Riverside. And just in time for Thanksgiving, California employers brace for rate increases next year as high as 22% based upon a WCIRB recommendation, which has been opposed by Insurance Commissioner Poisner. The state fund announced last week that they will increase rates by about 5%, which was much less than the WCIRB recommendation. It may therefore come as some good news that Zenith Insurance Company filed for only a 2.7% increase with the California Department of Insurance this week. Thus, both carriers have announced less-than-expected rate increases. These announcements may lead the way to competitive pricing pressures for California that are far less than the expected 22% benchmark. If so, this will be some good news to California employers in 2010. Happy New Year! More than 1,400 workers' compensation professionals attended the 18th National Workers' Compensation and Disability Conference in Chicago this week. Risk and Insurance Magazine is reporting that one of the hottest topics this year is Medicare set-aside reporting. A queue of attendees were anxious to ask questions of a presenter who usually has far less interest in this subject. Most wanted to ask, when a self-insured employer or workers' comp manager is, or is not required to report a workers' comp case involving a Medicare-eligible claimant to the government. Jim Pokius, chairman of the Medicare Practice Group at a Scranton-based firm, said, things have only gotten more complicated since the 2007 passage of the Medicare, Medicaid, and SCHIP Extension Act. 
Any time a workers' comp claim is filed, the Act places the burden of researching and reporting to Medicare whether an individual is Medicare eligible on the insured. The federal goal is that Medicare be protected from exposure as the primary payer in a case where the employer might share the burden. But any claim from a person who is eligible for Social Security disability payments, not just those 65 or older, is triggered under the Act. And that's where it gets tricky. The speaker pointed out that a person can get Social Security disability at a very young age, even as young as 19. The problem then, then becomes, how do you know if they are reportable? You may have a worker who initiates a workers' comp claim in 2005 and has applied for Social Security disability benefits but doesn't get approved for them until 2007. They might not be so kind as to tell you that they obtained Social Security disability approval. This could leave the insured or the insurer on the hook for a fine of $1,000 per person per day for anyone who is Medicare eligible that they didn't report. So far, Medicare isn't enforcing the fine, but that doesn't mean that they won't in the future. California regulations for electronic workers' compensation billing should be law before the end of this year and are likely to see fast-tracked implementation. E-billing is a key initiative the California Insurance Commissioner and Division of Workers' Compensation officials say is essential to streamline the state's workers' compensation system. California's e-bill regulations will specify an 18-month phase-in period after regulations get signed into law for workers' compensation payers to acquire the ability to process e-bill transactions. In addition, California is adopting uniform electronic claim and remittance standards, similar to those mandated in Texas and Minnesota, you betcha, which are supported by national standards organizations. E-billing and EAMS modernize California claim workflows, but at the potential cost of privacy risks. These risks become more apparent when news surfaced this week that the Nebraska State Patrol and FBI are trying to figure out who hacked into a Nebraska workers' compensation court computer server and whether the hacker took personal information. Birth dates and social security numbers would have been on the server. The breach likely occurred in early September, and the server was vulnerable until it was shut down in November, soon after it was discovered. Warnings are being sent by Nebraska officials to claimants advising them to take precautions against possible fraudulent use of their identity. The National Association of Manufacturers and the Coalition for Workplace Safety recently sent letters to the U.S. Senate urging lawmakers to hold a hearing on President Obama's selection of David Michaels for the position of Assistant Secretary of Labor. The groups told the committee members that they want the opportunity to question Michaels on a range of issues, including his position on regulating work-related musculoskeletal disorders. Michaels is a research professor at George Washington University. He claims that ergonomics risks are the leading causes of workplace injuries. He also claims that OSHA has not developed a standard to adequately protect workers from the hazards of poorly designed work settings. Health and safety experts believe that Democrats may try to resurrect the Clinton administration's national ergonomic standard, which was repealed shortly after President Bush took office. No surprise there.
The coalition believes that the available science and data do not support Mr. Michael's views on ergonomics. They want a Senate committee hearing to thoroughly explore his controversial views on key areas of OSHA operations. The Government Accountability Office, or GAO, claims that work-related injuries are underreported nationwide. They call into question the accuracy of data that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration compiles each year. The report by the GAO said, many employers did not report workplace injuries and illnesses for fear of increasing their workers' compensation costs or hurting their chances of winning contracts. The report also said workers did not report job-related injuries because they feared being fired or disciplined and worried that their co-workers might lose incentives or bonuses. The GAO report noted that the rate of workplace injuries has declined fairly steadily since 1992. OSHA attributed this reduction to improvements in workplace safety and the decline in the number of manufacturing jobs. But the GAO report cited several academic studies that found that OSHA data failed to include up to two-thirds of all workplace injuries and illnesses. AIG, Liberty Mutual, and Chubb con continue their accusations against each other in their longstanding feud. Insurers, including Chubb and Liberty Mutual Group, have said that AIG was offering coverage at below market rates to retain clients after getting a U.S. bailout, now valued at over $182 billion. Chartis, Inc., the property casualty division of AIG, denied these charges. Chartis announced that comments from competing insurers that they have been selling coverage at unsustainable rates reflect competitors' frustration that they have been unable to unseat the Chartis organization in the marketplace. The Government Accountability Office, the investigative arm of the U.S. Congress, said in a March report that it found no evidence of underpricing by AIG. And in case you were wondering, here's what's coming up next week. On Tuesday, November 24, the Employers Fraud Task Force will hold their luncheon meeting. The EFTF meets on the fourth Tuesday of each month. Call Laura Clifford, their very capable executive director, for detailed meeting information. The California DIR and the California Commission on Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation, in collaboration with the International Association, of Industrial Accident Boards and Commissions will host the fifth International Forum on Disability Management right here in Los Angeles next September. Monday, November 30 is the deadline to submit proposals for papers. Proposals must be submitted electronically to Denise Vargas by email. Her email address is dvargas at dir.ca.gov. Information about these and other events can be found on our website by clicking the Work Comp Calendar tab on the top of our homepage. That's all our news and events for this week. Please check our user-friendly website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. They've got an app for that. Again, I'm Deborah Tobias for WorkComp Academy. Thanks for joining us, and please visit us again next week for more news. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. <laughs>